What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 146, colon, Prisoners. I am one of your hosts, the surprisingly husky George Terran tonight, because of a viral throat infection. Thank you very much, whoever gave this to me. Go fuck yourself. And I'm here by the man, the myth, the one that we all want to kiss and tell about. Mr. Croft, how are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy. I've worn my prisoner attire this evening. I believe prisoners all wear uh beanies or toques if you're a weirdo canadian um i'm very glad you decided to take up jazz singing in the uh in the past week uh, i'm sure you have a lovely singing voice as peter Vangman once my, my tube and throat singing is really coming along nice it's very good very good the, the who. make a man weep the mongolian metal band the who are touring melbourne very soon i'm sure you'll be very very much in line for support um support slot I, I genuinely actually like The Who. Um, I was introduced to them by a friend of the show, Eric Forrest. And um, yeah, their, their stuff is actually kind of fun. <laughs> I, I think I saw them very briefly at a music festival I was at um, that three years ago before the end of the world. Um, and yes, uh, interesting sound. I was uh, I half tempted to go, but I don't know enough of their shit to actually pay quite a bit of money to see them. I'm already yeah, paying I'm, quite a bit of money to see Chris Jericho at the end of the year, and I like know two songs of his band. Yeah, no, that's that's very fair. I mean, I was kind of tempted. It's like, oh, maybe I should go and see another band live that isn't Nickelback. Um, but then, you know, when you've reached the top, where else do you go from you know, there? I mean, there should be a live goal, really. I mean, it's it's a bit like um, you, you want to get that off your off your books at some point in time, you know. Well, I feel now it's just an institution and. Do we really want to break down that institution? If I were you, I would, yes. <laughs> Anybody will do. Purposely to piss you off. The next band I'll see will be the first time that Nickelback come to Australia again. No, next time you should definitely see should be fucking Coldplay. Then you'll be really then you've got you've got two ticks on the bingo card once more and you get a free set of crappy steak knives. No, um, I'm, I'm good for that one. And I'm sure that would be exceedingly bland. <laughs> um, steak knives at that. I did remember that I have actually seen two other bands live. Uh, one of them was The Killers and one of them was The Manic Street Preachers. And I'm yeah. a big fan of Manic Street Preachers. So. I do like The Manic Street Preachers. I saw them play, this is not interesting for our audience at all, I'm sure. Um, I did see them play at the Big Day Out and it would have been... 1999 or 1998 yeah. thereabouts um yeah. and they were very good i i taught a couple of years maybe three four years ago and i was like um oh, very much a shame i didn't know they were touring until after they'd left the country unfortunately but um there's the breaks uh we got we got we got a we got our first comment of the evening i know george are you sick he's not sick he's just decided to take up smoking this week <laughs> Well, you know what, uh, Kelsey, I just figured with everything, else, the way my personality is in the workplace, I needed a more dominating voice, and this is it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have... George Burns, comically large cigar. You can just... It's it's true. Uh, hang on. Hang on. I, can, I can use this and just like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my company. Mm. Ah, Mr. Bond, welcome to Amsterdam. Very, very villain-esque. I like it. I think I could. I, I'm even in the twirly chair. I could definitely do it. Hang on. Mm, welcome. 
all our audio only <laughs> listeners will be having a wonderful time just imagining yes. your mind's eye george <laughs> man with green hair on his spinny chair smoking a, a ram's horn <laughs> if you don't need a greater advertisement about why you should be watching the show and not mm -hmm. just downloading the audio version there it is i may or may not be slightly drunk on hot toddies because i was told that it would help my throat as well as cough syrup hot toddies what are you putting in them brandy uh whiskey um with ginger lemon and honey basically kind of a weird twisted old-fashioned but warm no i'm familiar with a hot toddy i've had them they're quite popular in north america mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um I, someone actually gave me one for free once in the bar when i mentioned i'd never had one which wasn't mm -hmm. exactly true but um you know i'll take a free drink oh, i'm yeah. australian you know i'm, I'm yeah. not a monster um well there's a fine line <laughs> oh shots fired <laughs> it's been an interesting week in Australia. We had an election last weekend, which meant um, it was very exciting for those of us in the political class. My co-host is not one of them. Uh, being a non-citizen, he doesn't have to vote. Um, so that meant he avoided the sausage chisels and the cake stands on the weekend. But I went to my nearest sort of – it's not much – really weird – they really don't have a lot of places to vote in and around the CBD of Melbourne. Like literally in the, the grid, mm -hmm. you don't know what the grid is. Look up a, a map of what Melbourne CBD looks like. It's basically a grid. There was zero places to vote inside the grid. You basically had to go out to um, South Wharf, which is a suburb just outside of a CBD, to a giant convention center where every man and his goddamn dog was voting. I had to wait an hour in line to to vote which doesn't really happen in australia very much it's sort of more something you hear about for the united states but it we did it um and fortunately it seems like the result came in the way i like to see them mm. um and uh well what and I, that meant a night of of joviality at home on the couch watching people count votes i mean is there more entertaining television out there i think not well, well, also, if those of you who are on my Facebook, unfortunately, would have been subjected to an endless stream of me just shitposting the previous conservative government for about four hours before I fell asleep. Mr. Prime Minister, I, that's not my job. Pretty much. It's, it's, it was just, it was a glorious night of politics, um, which I'm sure, again, if you're not an Australian, you probably didn't know what happened and you probably don't care. Well, let's be honest. There's, there's a momentary blip where every Western country, at least, is momentarily interested in the election of another country, particularly b between the three and four major English-speaking countries of America, England, Australia, and Canada. And um, nothing really exciting happens in Canada, is Canada. England... Uh, just fucked um america is on the we're, we're in the quiet corner for right now so australia sort of like hey everyone let's see what we can do i think we are very much the 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 uh stephen baldwin of um the, that uh daniel baldwin should i say of that, <laughs> that, that sort of family of um, democracies we are you you got alec and you've got billy up the top there and by the way the uk is billy uh, oh, harsh but fair. And let's uh, face so it, the green the vote counter du jour is a sexy vote counting calculator. Best TV ever. I think that's uh, probably fair, actually, considering... Uh, those who don't know who Anthony Green is, he is, I mean, 
sex on legs has probably been said about this man before. Um, and I am now, for, for those of you who are fortunate enough to be watching uh, live, and you should be too, mm-hmm. I'm just going to bring up a photograph of Anthony there. It's a bad photo. He... There you go. Oh, look at that. He he just looks like he should absolutely be doing like, hey, hey, it's Saturday. There or... he is. The sex on legs itself. <laughs> you know, we, we are very lucky to live in the same universe as Anthony Green. Let's be honest. If some might say this is the worst people. reality. Yeah. yeah someone else somewhere out there in another reality that doesn't have Anthony Green. Let's be honest. If there are two people qualified to determine who is sex on legs, it is us. I think so. I think that's 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 being largely determined. I think study. I have done a literature review of the science, and it says yes, we exist, and potentially we may be a judge of what is sex. Um, but you know, I, I choose to believe it. Um, should we move on with what the show is actually about, rather than fluffing why it not, out? Why not? Let, let's talk about. Should we go straight on to uh, the shame movie? I, I had the keys last week. You did. You did. And I decided to take us. Uh, I was going to follow. Uh, Academy Award nominee and man who Marvel said, yeah, nah, to mm-hmm. Terrence Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we've got the full story about why he got yeah, nah, out of the Iron Man franchise. If he's difficult to work with or you want him more money, I don't remember. I think it was a combination of those two, actually. Either way, the film was the 2013 mm-hmm. drama, mystery, crime thriller, Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by, and I have decided he has get the the prefix the great Denis Villeneuve yeah. has mm-hmm. not, at least as far as I've seen, I've seen most of his films mm-hmm. in all his English language films. Mm-hmm. He has not made a bad film. Mm-hmm. I, agree. I agree. I didn't yeah. like you very much, but it's not a bad film. Yeah. But uh, what is Prisoners about, Travis? What is it? When Keller Dover's daughter and her friend go missing. He takes matters into his own hands. This is one man pushed too far. In a world where a law-abiding citizen is getting a sequel. Sorry, that's true, by the way. They're making yeah. a sequel to that movie. Um, when Keller Dover's daughter and her friend go missing, he takes matters into his own hands as police pursue multiple leads and the pressure mounts. Here's the IMD synopsis. This is going to be all storyline detail. How far mm-hmm. would you go to protect your family? Keller Dover is facing every Karen's worst nightmare. His six-year-old mm-hmm. daughter, Anna, is missing together with her young friend, Joy. And as minutes turn into hours, panic sets in. The only lead is a dilapidated RV that had earlier been parked in the street. Mm-hmm. Heading the investigation, Detective Loki arrests driver Alex Jones. Not that Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lack of evidence forces his release. As mm-hmm. the police pursue multiple leads and pressure mounts, knowing his child's life is at stake, Dover decides he has no choice but to take matters into his own hands. Just how far will his desperate father go to protect his family? And does it involve adrenochrome? Um... The answer to that is no. Uh, and that's an Alex Jones reference for the uh, InfoWars <laughs> fans out there. Good evening. I hope you're staying clear of the interdimensional demons. Um, <laughs> that's not as funny as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Keller Dover is played by Hugh Jackman, mm-hmm. Detective Loki, a uh, dedicated and you know single-minded detective trying mm-hmm. to track down the kids. He's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Hugh Jackman's well, Keller Dover's wife is played by Maria Bello as Grace Dover. Mm-hmm. His best friend, their, their, their daughter, is missing with her friend. Her friend is the daughter of uh, Franklin, 
uh, Franklin Birch. Made by Terrence Birch. Now, Franklin, of course, played, of course, by this week's link, Terrence Howard. Viola Davis, a great <laughs> Viola Davis, plays Nancy Birch. Um, Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, a.k.a. weirdo killer guy, maybe, is played by uh, most recent Riddler, Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are probably the, the, other, the other face you'll probably recognize in here is uh, Holly Jones. Alex's mother is played by Academy Award winner Melissa Leo. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Taylor is played by David Dallas. I don't know, in Matt Melchin? Who um, most people would probably know from his DC villain roles. He was in um, The Dark Knight. Uh, he was in Joker's Thugs. He also played Polka Dot Man in Suicide yeah. Squad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, and he's you know, just. Just hit off straight away with um, with a little bit of criticism on the blurb that we read out because it very much reads like your typical law-abiding citizen-style blockbuster kind of thing of a man goes, you know, defends his own family and things like that, where in reality this movie is very much not that typical thing. This is far more nuanced, far more character-driven and far more psychological than and considered than anything. It's not an action movie. It's not Jerry no. Butler chasing people no. and shooting them. And, no. uh, not Commando or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. This um, is definitely more the nuanced side of the emotional, psychological burden of having something taken away from you and being so desperate that you go to extreme measures to try and get justice and answers is... I think there's a, a lot of different things at play here. Well, just to, up front of it, this is some film from 2013 for a French-Canadian director. This mm-hmm. was, uh, as I said, Denis Villeneuve. I think mm-hmm. this is actually his first English-language film. I think um, so. Uh, and it was written by a gentleman named Aaron Gusikowski, who I believe is American. The only other notable thing that I think I've noticed he wrote uh, is the writer of Raised by Wolves, the uh, Apple Ridley Scott series. <laughs> which I haven't seen. Um, but one thing that's was running through my head here is, is Villeneuve and the writer, are they saying something in here about something that's a bit broader than just, you know, um, and one man, his quest to get his kid back. But I, I found like, was it, are there other echoes of things like Abu Ghraib in here? Mm-hmm. Um, so a bit of background, it's Thanksgiving, um, Hugh Jackman and his wife, uh, Grace, played by Maria Bello, go to their friend's house. There's Terrence Howard to Viola Davis's, the Birch's house. The kids are running around playing. They, mm-hmm. they, they bring them back at one point, but they want to go back to the house to find something they've lost. And mm-hmm. at one point, they suddenly realize the kids haven't been around for a while. And before you know it, they're frantically searching all over the house, their, their house, the Birch's house, the neighborhood to try and find them. Mm-hmm. Before long, it becomes obvious something's happened and they are, you know, they're, they're in the wind. No one knows where they are. Before long, there's a massive police and volunteer search of the area. Uh, the only link, as the synopsis gave, is earlier when they're out on the street playing with their older siblings, they noticed that there was a rundown old RV on the street, which the kids mm-hmm. were playing around. Mm-hmm. Now it's gone. That is located later on, and that is found to have Alex Jones, Paul Dano, driving it. So he is the number one suspect. Unfortunately, he is. What's the uh, what's the uh, the PC term these days? He is mentally challenged, so he has a of a low IQ, uh, and the police can't get anything out of him. 
So they can't prove he did anything. There's no forensic evidence that they were in his car. So uh, they have to let him go. At that point, uh, Hugh Jackman's uh, Keller just overcome with, you know, grief and anxiety and fear about his daughter, as Mm. it notes, takes matters into his own hands. Now, I'm guessing... We're gonna get a little spoilery from here. If there's something, if you, this is this is a nine year old film. I feel like I think we're okay. We're <laughs> okay. So if you really want to see, you don't want any spoilers. You know, come back later. Um, so at that point, it, Keller actually uh, kidnaps uh, Alex Jones and <laughs> takes him back to a dilapidated house his father used to live in, whereby he systematically tortures mm-hmm. um, Alex to try and get him to confess about where. Mm-hmm. Dead kids are, and he won't tell them. Mm-hmm. At one point, he actually boards him up inside a shower where he can barely sit down mm-hmm. and scalds him with hot water and freezes him with cold water, mm-hmm. all in an effort to try and make him confess. And mm-hmm. it was at that moment where I kind of found myself going, "Is is this Villeneuve making comment on on U.S. policy towards this kind of thing and torture?" Mm-hmm. 2013, I mean, we're a long way from that now. And so you kind of go, you don't hear much about that shit anymore, right? We're oh, yeah, probably still torturing the fuck out of people, but no one talks about it anymore. Look um, over there, it's Will Smith slapping someone. You're pretty much like, um, you know, the, the Guantanamo Bay is still open. I think there are still people detained there. So yeah, uh, what do I know? Um, but I, I don't know if that was popped into your head at all or whether you felt there was any kind of symbolism there going on. I definitely, I definitely be- agree with you that there are, um, there's more going on and more messaging. Going back to what one of the, our listeners said week before last, I think about messages in movies. This one, I think, has quite um, an overt message of that, and particularly how the um, the journey of Keller evolves from the beginning to how he ends and what happens within there, there is definitely a message of pushing the line too far and having some form of accountability, whether it's kind of that ironic twist of fate or whatever you'd like to call it. Um, I do definitely think that there is that point of Keller is presented as very all-American, despite being played by an Australian. Um, and, and, you know, he's that hardworking, hardworking Joe who's bought himself up. He's got a house in the suburbs. He goes to his friend's house for the lovely Thanksgiving and everything seems right in the world. And then he's pushed and is, and there is definitely that element of sympathy that you are kind of um, imbued with the way that the story is revealed at the early stages of him being so emotionally distracted and going and uh, being aggressive with detective Loki about you need to be harder. You need to be stronger and more aggressive with these people and him actually being the one to step over that line of legal and illegal activity going through to the, the point where you really do end up feeling not necessarily sympathy for Alex Jones's character, but um uncomfortable distance to the Keller character purposefully. And, and it's really clever at doing that in a sense. It's, it's very vague about its morality. It's not trying to sell us Keller mm. as a villain. Mm. It's certainly not being told uh, Alex is an innocent, <laughs> you know, innocent in all of this. And 
later it is revealed that he was involved in in the kidnapping mm. of the girls. You know, perhaps somewhat inadvertently or not inadvertently, potentially not with as malicious intent as mm. turned out. But he's no innocent. Yeah. Um, and that I think is where I think the allegory, which is a strange allegory, mm-hmm. to into a very you know. Uh, smaller story in a way to just insert an allegory about a you know a, a, a global superpower and its policy towards you know uh, terrorists in a way. Um, but I, I wonder, I kind of felt like it was there in a sense that no one's saying, you know, let's just take the allegory to its extension. Is it no one's saying <coughs> ISIS or Al Qaeda are nice people? Um, no one's saying, you know, but. The people at Camp X-Ray in Guantanamo Bay aren't crooks. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. We actually don't know. Um, but they aren't all nice people. But that doesn't mean the the person who was wronged, who Keller in this case was definitely wrong, but mm-hmm. by him taking the kind of actions he does and going to the extent that he does to torturing Alex, does that make him in many ways almost as bad? Or mm-hmm. he has to cross over. He has to become a monster to fight a monster in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, where Detective Loki is an interesting mm-hmm. um, sort of straight man to that story because he, yeah. you can see him edge towards that occasionally in the story. So there are times where he takes a law. I wouldn't say takes a law in his own hand. He certainly bends a law yeah. and in a way that, you know, you certainly shouldn't be doing where, you know, uh, be it <laughs> getting physical with um with suspects um entering properties without warrants that kind of thing um so but at the same time you see every time you see him pull back from that mm-hmm. to becoming the monster to always following procedure Absolutely. in a way yeah. um so i don't this is just something that was going through my head where i don't know but that's what villeneuve had in mind but that was that was certainly mm-hmm. something that occurred to me during the story which i found yeah. i really appreciated that this yeah. is not a like you sort of said it's not a straight you know commando john matrix goes around with a rocket launcher blowing up 74 people you know yeah. um it's a nuanced story about a lot of different things you can probably take a lot of read a lot of different things into the story mm. i think that's one of the other things that um really separates it from the the humdrum typicality of this daughter being taken scenario that hollywood has so liberally used as a movie base is the torture of the the presumed villain as well it is cerebral it is brutal it is so fucking basic as well it's really well done and not only do you see uh, does denny villeneuve show enough to make you feel really cringy but he also shows the emotional cost of going to those spaces particularly with terence howard's character i was gonna say i mean he's he's uncomfortable the whole time but eventually he comes around to it well well, never necessarily being fully comfortable with the idea he participates yeah and and even then uh, the 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 real nail in the in the coffin for me was viola davis character they have this momentary scene, just such a small scene, just in the car after they've come back from um, seeing torture happen. And they just like, we're going to leave him to do what he needs to do. We're not going to talk about it. I was like, fuck, that's a message right fucking there. <laughs> it's an interesting example of ra- how people rationalize the his yeah. kind of behavior in a way. I mean, you could just go back as far as the Holocaust in a way, you know, yeah. like how did people who live nearby, whether, 
where the concentration camps were and the death camps, how did they square that circle in their head? It's like, well, I'm not actually doing it. They're just going to do what they're going to do, and yeah. I'm going to let them, you know. I'm yeah, just doing get, my job and my parameters are here and anything that happens over there. Outside of that, I'm not responsible for. Yeah. And it's a little yeah. bit different here in the sense that there is a potential direct benefit that could come to the Birches mm-hmm. as a result of, you know, Keller, Keller's torture of Alex Jones. In a sense, yeah. they could get their daughter back. Yeah. And obviously they got to the point in their own heads where they've kind of decided that potentially his solution mm-hmm. is the only way to get mm-hmm. the information they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very much kind of a, a head in the sand kind of moment. It's like, well, we're not going to do anything, but if he gets the information we need, then so be it. Mm. Um, and again, that you could almost say the Birches are the American people in this story. Mm-hmm. The American people are kind of going, look, I don't really like them torturing people, but I'm going to let the CIA go and do waterboard those cunts if they want to, and mm-hmm. they'll do, I'll stand aside. I'll let them do whatever they want to do because that might mean. A benefit for me. I, I feel better at night. It could be less terrorists or whatever. Um, that's sort of how I saw their involvement in the story. And they've been kind of dragged into it. And they're not entirely comfortable with it, but they're prepared to accept it if it means they get what they want. Um, so uh, talking performances here, mm. I think this might be the best role I've ever seen Hugh Jackman in, short of maybe Logan. This is definitely the best non-Wolverine role I've ever seen him in. I would. I was thinking the similar thing. I really appreciate his role in The Fountain as well, which is a very diversifying movie. Um, but just the fact that it it's a role that doesn't rely on his predisposition to be a likable guy. Um, it subverts that expectation and it forces him to be more emotional and more raw and really put his acting chops into, into use here. And I really, really appreciate it that especially just the little scenes where he's talking to Alex Jones through the, through the wood. And it's just that little tiny hole. That's the only source of light for Alex. And it's the only way that they can talk to each other. And he's just talking and just, trying to be rational and just the emotion that bubbles up and the way that he kind of ebbs and flows throughout the scene going from mad and angry to desperate and everything in between. It's a genuinely fantastic performance that's worthy of attention. Uh, It may not be a world away from, from Wolverine in a way. If you think of Wolverine as a, a force of nature, you know, a Mm. bull at a gate, and that's Mm. very much the kind of way, at least in the early X-Men films, that was the way he played Wolverine as, you know, that the rest of the X-Men were trying to hold him back from being, you know, this you know, one-man wrecking machine when potentially, you know, to a, as they say, to a, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And I think Wolverine is definitely a hammer. Yeah. Um, but and it's probably Wolverine without the likability, um, yeah. without the charisma. This is just, a, this is a man, It's Keller Dover is also a nail. Sorry, yeah. Hammer. He and everything around him is a, is a now to be hit, uh, and I, I really enjoyed that. It was a while it may not be a world away from what he did mm-hmm. with um, with Wolverine. There, I just think he took it to another level. It's mm-hmm. a little bit like um, if you, I know people hate it, and I talk about it all the time. If we go to Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love, he's mm-hmm. not playing a very different character in that film. No, he plays not. in all of his films because you know a man child of anger issues. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that the director spins it. 
and mm. the way that Sandler guides his performance in a more disturbing direction yeah. rather than playing it for laughs. It's kind of played for cringe and, oh, God, that's horrible. Um, yeah. Same sort of thing here that Hugh Jackman's doing. Uh, and I was like, oh, you do less fucking musicals. Yes, please. Uh, and more shit like this, please. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal, again, one of the best roles I've seen him play in. He plays really well in Villeneuve films. I mean, he was also in Enemy, which I talked about earlier in the year, which is a yeah, fucking weird movie. It's great um, movie. But Jake Gyllenhaal, I mean, he's, he's, his star has faded a bit over the last over the last few years. I suspect Taylor Swift has something to do with that. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe maybe Jake had a little bit to do with that as well. Um, uh, I understand he's maybe not as nice a guy as we'd like to believe, but I don't know. Um, but he's fantastic in his film as a really sort of measured performance as Detective Loki. But at the same time, it's not a stereotypical performance. It really is nuanced. And you can see you learn a lot about Loki, even though we don't learn a lot about Loki, really, if that makes sense. Like, we don't know where he's from, who his parents are, how he was brought up. But I feel like you you really know who he is by the end of the film. And it's just subtle nuances of his performance and little character developments, like the the tattoos that you see every now and then. It's like, Okay, he's probably from the from the armed forces or services in some way. He's seen something, and that's where his kind of his metal was forged for for being this cop. That you there's I think there's like a throwaway line where it's like he every case he's had he's always solved, and he has that antagonistic relationship with his captain, and he's not afraid of telling the captain this is your fucking fault and things like that. It works. It works well. But it works well without coming across as cliche, which is interesting. Yeah. Not, if you think of that scene from um, uh, Last Action Hero where they're, they're blowing steam out of his ears and blasting the <laughs> like, it doesn't play it for, like, as cliche yeah. as that. It actually feels kind of legit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, shout out to the police captain played by Wayne Duval, whose mm. name you won't recognise. Looking up, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy. I've seen him mm. in heaps of shit. Yeah. Um, the other really impressive performances here was one, Paul Dano as Alex Jones. I mean, uh, this is nine years ago. Like, this is his, this is him auditioning for the Riddler, um, you know, before he, Ben Affleck had finished his run as Batman. Like, he's like, um, he got to be careful or else he's going to get stuck in these roles as weirdo creeps. Well, honestly, he has kind of got that somewhat weirdo thing. I mean, the the most notable movies that he's done is obviously the Batman. There was this. There was um, Swiss Army Man. Um, he was in uh, The Girl Next Door, which is even in that he was like the slightly weird one. Um, and um, uh, there would be Blood, where that's a really messed up movie overall. So he. I think he very much relishes in going to these dark places with characters, even if the movie might not necessarily kind of be that dark. He wants to kind of find find out where that where the dark points are for each of his characters, and then he kind of reins it back according to the movie and the director. I just it's wonder if he's like the most normal, boring guy you've ever met in your entire life. He's got to be the most boring person on earth to play this many weirdos. So yeah. well. <laughs> he's fantastic in this. Like he, it's a different kind of villain to say Riddler, where I guess he's trying to build a bit of menace as Riddler, and you kind of be a little bit not necessarily a threat to Batman, but scary in a way. Like I know yeah. he was inspired by the Zodiac Killer and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So 
he's definitely a creepy, scary, menacing kind of vibe to the Riddler, whereas this one, he's kind of pathetic. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, does has been involved in some horrible things. Yeah. Um, yet also experienced by the sound of it, some horrible things. So really layered, nuanced performance by Paul Dano. The, the other one you might notice in here um, and is probably Melissa Leo. Yeah. Um, she's had a, on a really hot streak there in the uh, early part of that decade because this is, what, a couple of years after the fighter? Yeah, the fighter was what she won for, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, that she, she, funny enough, she's kind of disappeared off the map in the last, you know, I don't know how many, six or seven years because, like, I can't remember seeing her in anything else since this probably. I mean, um, I'm just thinking. Uh, was in Thunder Force with Melissa McCartney. Yes, anyway. Um, <laughs> less about that, the better. Um, she is outstanding in her fairly small role as Alex Jones' mother, Holly. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the real villain of a piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the final scene with her and Hugh Jackman in the kitchen is chilling. And, and it's the performance of her in, in that, the, particularly the twist of her character that really makes it hard to pin down a morality point of view on Alex because of what she has done, because of how she has lived her life. And it makes you question whether Alex is a villain or a victim or an innocent bystander caught up in something else. And it's that level. And doing something so impacting on the narrative of the whole story, right in the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie, that takes balls. And to pull it off in such an impressive way, that takes skill from the actors and the director. Really great stuff. Introducing the real villain as a real, it's a fringe character we've spent almost no time with in the film. Normally you'd be like, oh. <coughs> you sort of kind of, you just kind of undermine your whole story and it really feels cheap a lot of the time. Um, yeah. But as you sort of note, they've pulled it off here. And again, I think that speaks volumes, as you note, that speaks volumes to the skill of Denis Villeneuve and having an exquisite star in Melissa Leo, who, uh, if you don't know who she is, do check out The Fido. It's one of the few good reasons to see that film. Um, this is a... <laughs> Overlooking a little bit here, um, mm -hmm. Terrence Howard mm -hmm. sort of said his role as kind of the, uh, the American people to um, Keller, Keller's CIA is mm -hmm. interesting. He does the best he can with it, but he is a French character. And mm -hmm. same with Maria Bello. She's asleep for most of the film. For such yeah. a fine actress, it's a bit of a shame. Yeah. And the same with Viola Davis. We all know what Viola Davis is capable of. She's an outstanding actor. And she gets very little to do in this film, unfortunately. So, I mean, if there's a criticism, but female characters in this film aren't necessarily treated very well. Yeah. In the sense that they just don't get a lot of screen time. No, no, they don't. Um, one part that I would like to just bring up as, as well done as well is uh, Dylan Minetti, who played uh, Ralph Dover, the, the eldest son, in the, the limited screen time that he has, the interactions that he has with Hugh Jackman, and particularly being the go-between between, between um, Maria Bello and Hugh Jackman's mum and dad's characters, he does really quite well with it. He's 
he's a face that you'd know. Um, he was in Let Me In, Goosebumps, uh, Scream. He's been in a few bits. He's not really had a chance to really break out. Um, but um, he delivers a, a solid performance when surrounded by talent that that he is in this. So well done to him. It's a good call. Uh, you might, those of you who are listening closely, might realize we haven't really called out David Dasmalchian. Mm-hmm. I found his character a little confusing personally. Like he kind of flitters in and out of a story, and in the end, I'm not quite sure what we were supposed to make of him. But um, yeah, it was. He, I, I think it was a red herring too much. Yeah. Um, he is generally good in those sort of like off kilter antisocial character positions um so there's nothing necessarily bad about his performance but just him as a tool for the narrative just didn't really work for me i think it was over needed over overspent in the end he just wasn't i think back to it now i'm like what was he again where did he click into the for plot yeah and i can't really figure it out i remember what he did and yeah. it was cool and he's he's very good in the limited space yeah. in the story he has I think um, he's one of the few kids that actually got away, but I'm not sure. sure. And that, um, that, that that reminds me of the other point that I wanted to talk about with the narrative is irrespective of the efforts of Detective Loki and Keller, um, they, they are somewhat incidental to the, the success or failure of the kids still being alive realistically. And I approve yeah. of that. Yeah. <coughs> uh, what did you make of a twist at the end? That was, we, we, apart from the fact that it kind of came out of nowhere, did it satisfy you? Um, I think it needed to happen to get some kind of, I don't know, cosmic balance to the story and how all the characters were being portrayed. But at the same time... I kind of feel like they could have just left it after the scene where um, Loki is visited um, by Maria in the hospital and he's got the wound to his head. I think they could have just just left it there rather than have the final scene. The original plan was to not have that scene and to, to basically leave Hugh Jackman to basically die in a pit underground. Mm. Um I found it. I liked it. I kind of thought that we didn't. Well, we didn't necessarily get the great heroic, you know, thing of him being saved. But mm. just that final scene of um, uh, Loki whistle. standing outside mm. in the freezing cold and just hearing that faint whistling coming in, I thought found it a very satisfying ending to the film. Yeah. yeah. Um, this film is long, two hours thirty three minutes, and most people are used to me complaining about films that are too long. Did you think this was, was too long, or do you reckon it was about the right length? I think that if they had not had um, uh, Daniel Dashhausen's kind of character element in there, I don't think it would have lost too much of the story. Um, And I think it would have just tightened it up a little bit and made it more palatable overall. But everything is purposeful. This is something that Denis Villeneuve is particularly good at, is making use and squeezing every emotional beat out of every scene that he has. It's one of the things that we talked about when we talked about Dune 
And um, when we talked about Blade Runner and things like that, he uses that time in a narrative way. So it makes sense. I understand why he did it and it makes it tough that this movie is not supposed to be easy. Absolutely not. This is not an easy watch. If you're looking for something to put on mm. in the background while you text, mm. <laughs> I would not recommend this film. No. Um, I, I enjoyed this immensely and I was really disappointed in myself that I hadn't got around to seeing it before now because it has an 8.1 on IMDb, which pops it in the top 250 IMDb. Mm-hmm. only has a 70 meta score, which is low. Um, there are a couple of things that people reviews there that didn't like it that kind of drags it down. Yeah. Um, I think this is an exceptional piece of cinema and maybe one of those films that people should go back and discover some of Villeneuve's early English language work that maybe they didn't catch up on until he started making blockbusters, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I thought it was was uh, was masterful. And in a way, I kind of look at this and go, kind of wish he'd leave Dune alone now and go back to making original IP. Like, stop making, you know, I mean, I like Blade Runner a lot. You know, I remember we saw it. We both really enjoyed that. And I thought Dune had its moments despite overall being not perfect um but he's like oh you do these little stories it's a small scale story told mm-hmm. quite large yeah he's really good at that and um i look forward to um him doing more of that i hope that once he gets june part two out of his system he does adopt more of that guillermo del toro attitude of studio movie blockbuster movie um you know indie movie blockbuster movie and just bringing it in because every time Guillermo goes off and makes his own thing, you get Pan's Labyrinth, you get The Shape of Water, you get Nightmare Alley. Um, and then you get intermittently these solid, but kind of standard blockbuster movies. It's like, well, that's entertaining. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but at the same time, when he is delivering something that we have both commented on in the past of there being a very severe lack of in Hollywood of thought provoking blockbuster movies. It's nice to have someone waving that flag and Chris Nolan was doing it for a while, but it's now become somewhat pretentious and self self-serving. Um, Denny Villeneuve still seems to be focusing on the story rather than on the Denny Villeneuve story. It's interesting. I noticed, I can't think of might've been IGN movies or something like that posted something recently on, on Facebook about, tenant and how how good it is and it's fascinating to see the split it's like it's down the middle right there's like the people who lo- like that film really 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 like it and they all get to wear their i'm a superior film fan to you you just didn't get it hat mm-hmm. um and so it, it's interesting when you see I, I feel like i need to see tenant again mm. maybe this time with subtitles <laughs> maybe it'll make more sense like i just yeah you're right i i think no one's got a bit up his own arms <laughs> And maybe he needs to get back to basics and someone just give him 5 million bucks instead of, you know, 150 and say, (coughs) two hands for beginners, mate, you know, make something a little bit less wanky. But uh, I think Jenny Villeneuve has some interesting stuff on the go apart from Dune if he ever gets around to making it. He's currently lined up to direct a Cleopatra film. It's been every man and his dog has had a run at this film. Oh, my goodness. Um, Yeah. So I like it. Interest, but um, 
really glad to have got around to this one. I, and it's my pick, so you know it's a little bit arrogant of me to say, but I'm glad I picked it. Some of the other options I could have gone gone with wouldn't have been anywhere near as much fun. Well, I think that sums up uh, prisoners rather nicely. And now the keys are back in my kingdom, and I have um, I knew what I was going to watch as soon yeah. as you said prisoners, and this takes in a lot of comments that we've had over the last couple of weeks about um you know movies that are very much us and safe for us or perfectly terrible well we are going to go to 2001 we are following hugh jackman and we are introducing into our wheel of chain movie a once legendary rom-com actress of meg ryan we are going to kate and leopold Kate and Leopold. Ah, yeah. I've never seen this one. So this is an English duke from 1876 is inadvertently dragged to modern day New York where he falls for a plucky advertising executive. <laughs> and directed by James Mangold. Um, yeah. A very different type of film for him. Yeah. So very curious about how this will go. Um not only directed by James Mangold, starring Hugh Jackman and Meg Ryan, but you've got Leif Schreiber in there, Breck and Meyer, um, one of your favourites, especially from Russia and Doll, uh, Natasha Leon, Bradley Whitford. There's a few people in there that gives you a few nice options of where to go next. Kristen Schaal, who's a, is a name you see pop up now and again. Um, very Okay, well, let's see if we can find a copy of uh, Kate Leopold, a bit of a rom-com, uh, a bit of change of pace from yeah. um, from uh, Prisoners. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's a nice counterpoint piece. <laughs> now, you gave me a heads up earlier this evening about a season of a show that we were a big fan of. Mm -hmm. Do you like to talk a little bit about Love, Death and Robots? I would love to talk about Love, Death and Robots and particularly my concern. Now, Love, Death and Robots is a show that we have both overall very enjoyed for the first two seasons. Um, season one definitely had us raving more than season two. There were some highlights in season two. But only recently, within the last few days, we had season three drop on Netflix. And have you seen it all or just some of it? I have seen it all, yes. And I watched the first two episodes tonight. I will say that overall, the overall quality of season three is better than the overall quality of season two. I think that there are some really standout performances. For example, um, the second one um, set on the ship. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Bad Travelling. That was a standout for me as well. Just in the first yeah. two. Yeah. And that was directed by one David Fincher. So, um, Oh, he's, he's a young upcoming. Young director. up and coming. And the... Uh, Interestingly, also, it's based on a short story by someone named Neil Asher. Sorry, don't know who you are. No. Um, but it was also, the script was written by a bloke named Andrew Kevin Walker. I don't know if you know that name. Yes. Where do I know it from? He wrote Seven. Yes, there we go. He so, also wrote um, uh, oh, what, the, the Nicolas Cage one. Eight, eight millimeter. millimeter, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Sleepy also wrote the um, Sleepy Hollow film that Tim Burton directed. Right. Yeah. Um, so some really so, interesting young up and coming talent. Up and coming director. So if you haven't seen Seven, that <laughs> is possibly, arguably, David Finch's best film. Arguably, mm -hmm. there's a lot okay. of debate about that. You can have your 
but you know, like that is a fantastic that that is this show <laughs> at its best. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like in twenty minutes, it builds a universe mm-hmm. more compelling and characters more interesting than Marvel has done in ten years. Hundred mm-hmm. mm-hmm. percent. Um, the voice work in it is fantastic. The animation is unique. It's got that hyper-realistic element to it, but at the same time, the particularly the, the human characters in it are somewhat a little bit dismorphed, um, just putting that slight edge of just uncomfortable to everything. You don't get that uncanny valley kind of thing of, so like, oh, it's literally just a CGI version of this actor or that actor. Um but it just does so well in creating such dread and psychoses and terror in Do you twenty think that minutes. Was the best episode of a season for you? <sighs> yes, yes, but I would say that this has got one of the more diverse kind of genre options of all three seasons um there's one um hang on i'm just gonna look at it see when it comes up so uh it's episode four it's night of the mini dead and it's weird it's funny but it's weird um and then you've got really unusual thought-provoking stuff like episode three is the very pulse of the machine and it's a weird cross between I don't know, 2001 A Space Odyssey with the episode of The Simpsons where Homer is wandering through the desert and you've got Johnny Cash talking as a as a coyote. It's really bizarre, but it's really well done and it's kind of thought-provoking, but in an unusual way that you're not going to kind of go, oh, yes, this is changing my thoughts on how society lives. It just makes you think, and it does it in an entertaining way. Um, and then you've got, uh, one of the most kind of obvious ending ones is episode seven, Mason's Rats, which you just see it, you know how it's going to end, but the story evolution is just really entertaining and you just kind of go, yep, I did see that coming, but that was good fun. I like that. And the animation was beautiful. Is The animation for that one in particular is almost like if they went, hmm, you know what? Let's take the animation from Ratatouille and make it even better and put it in this weird story. Don't you mean Rakakuni? Rakakuni. Oh, yes, yes. In another universe, yes, I do. Um, but then I will say that um, the animation in this overall is beautifully varied. There's classic 2D animation. There is the a lot of 3D animation and real world kind of CG real um, stuff. And the Jirabo, which is episode nine, it's the final one. The, the quality of the animation is genuinely stunning. And the way that it tells a story is phenomenal. It's essentially a silent movie in the way that there's no dialogue but a story is told and sound is very important to the telling of it so it'll be interesting to see what you think of it overall um but the big question in my mind was this has come out just weeks after netflix have said yeah we're slashing our animation department and 
I really hope that that does not include Love, Death and Robots because this is great stuff. We talked about it last week about the, the dying trend of anthology series where it's not that overarching story over 22 episodes or nine episodes or however many. This is individual isolated stories and it is phenomenal animation. It is an opportunity for um, directors, writers, creators to come together and just work on these unusual, unique stories and maybe set some seeds for something fantastic and interesting in a TV show or movie later on. It would be a huge loss to the industry if this dies because it really is great. I didn't like the first episode much. Um, we have a returning character from season one, the three robots on a post-apocalyptic tour. <coughs> I thought that was one of the best episodes on... Um, on uh in season one it's um pretty disappointing return here i was like oh cool i thought they were great and then they just regurgitated every you know political popular political talking point of the last four years or something in there and you're like ah oh, guys like you know they're preaching to the choir here but and yeah. nuance subtlety you know yeah. don't kind of just have to you regurgitate, mm, you know, Elon Musk's bad, Jeff Bezos. We already know that. Could you do something interesting? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, its rating reflects that as being one of the weaker episodes of the season. Yeah. I, I, I like the show quite a bit, if nothing else. I, I find myself a little bit like watching Bad Traveling. They're going, why isn't this a movie? Yeah. Why isn't this a movie? Like, it looks amazing. Yeah. You know, it's got great voice acting. It's, mm. you know, it's it's awesome like you know why can't we have movies that look like this you know mm -hmm. like um do hollywood like we talked a couple weeks ago how popular anime is now you know that is largely adult oriented animation now obviously there's a bigger market for that in japan but yeah. millions of people across like i go past melbourne central all the time there's a freaking uh painted mural on the wall of mm -hmm. like the, the hot new animes coming this season and i'm like you know, people love this shit. Like people like adult-oriented animation. I don't understand why we can't have a little bit more of that. Um, <laughs> this is one of the few places to find it here. So I'm curious to see the rest of the season. But I'm with you. It'd be a, a great disappointment to see this go away because I don't know. I, this is three years old now, and nothing's happened with it. You know, no one's taken the ball and run with it uh, apart from these guys. So, but yeah. it's it's nice to have to see such quality of animation and go, this is really fucking good. I'd like to see a little bit more of this. Yeah. And it, it particularly the, the overall quality of this show and the animation diversity and the animation quality. If I was an executive over at Marvel, I'd be looking at my what if series and it's going, well, we fucked up. We only said that when we watched, we talked yeah. about it. This is what, what it should look like. This yeah. is how we should make what if actually, I think it needs yeah. to step outside. We talked about it again. It needs to be outside the continuity of yeah. the name MCU. Like it was kind of cool <laughs> that like it played into Doctor Strange, but it still would have been way cooler if we had six episodes and you went out and just went to these guys, whoever the fuck is has made these these episodes yeah. and gone, would you like to make a Marvel show for about 25 minutes, half an hour? And I'm yeah. sure that'll take Marvel's money. So, you know, uh, and that would have been a more interesting series to see. Yeah. You know, five or six stories. Maybe give them a pick, you know, go. What kind of story would you like to tell? Who would you like? To, here's the last of characters we'd like you to be telling stories about. And yeah. Just haven't gone up with something original. Um, you yeah. know, there's a lot of content in um, the comic book back catalog, I'm sure, 
which yeah. probably doesn't lend itself to you know being full parts of the MCU, yeah. which could make you know interesting little snippets of stories. But yeah, um, we now, are going to get that. So what can you do? We're not. But on a side note, should we just quickly talk about uh, Thor: Love and Thunder trailer? Sure. I was unimpressed. Yeah, I am not impressed with it either. Um, I get we had the first one, I think it was last week, and that was very much your sort of like taster palette of what to expect. And this one was more of the story trailer. Um, it was introduction, introduction to Gore the God Butcher or whatever they like to call him and a bit more of Jane Foster as Mighty Thor and things like that. But I kind of don't care. I put it on my Facebook last night when I saw it. To me, this has two. This film has two things going for it for me right now. One, Taika Waititi. Um, he doesn't hasn't really made a bad film to date. Um, and you know, the second one is the last one. It sort of feeds on from that. The last one was so fucking good. Like they finally got Thor right on the third try. It was so much fun. And you kind of go, okay, you know, look, well, Tyke's great. The last film was great. You know, I still have some hope for this yeah. to this film. Other than that, if it didn't have those two features, I would say this is looking like a dumpster fire, personally. Uh, I don't, yeah. I look at story trailer, I'm like, I've got no idea what story you're telling. Yeah, I think it's like they, they came out very quickly with, um, Thor Ragnarok and kind of prefaced it all by saying it's a buddy a buddy comedy movie in space which gave you an idea of, of what to expect and the trailer sold you on that and there was more to it than that not too much more it didn't need to be too much more but this we haven't really been told anything like that there hasn't been any prelude to it and I don't know it just feels disconnected yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I said to somebody today, I said to Michelle today, actually, but we, we've been saying it for a few years. Marvel don't make good trailers. No, um, I don't. I went back to going back years now. I remember when Black Panther was coming out. I'm like, that looks terrible. Um, yeah. And I wasn't, for me, I didn't think the trailers looked good. And I was <laughs> thinking this could be a shit show. It turned out to be really fucking good. Um, you know, made all the monies. Yeah. So, um, I was wrong. And so you kind of get used to after a while going, putting out lousy trailers and going, well, they figure they don't have to try because they're Marvel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the other part that kind of feeds into that now that's important for me is the phase four films haven't been good. Uh, apart from Spider-Man, no way home. Yeah. Um, really. I think they've all been deeply, deeply flawed um, and kind of really meh. So, yeah. Um, and I'm including Doctor Strange in that because we talked about it last week. It was kind of meh. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of well, you haven't made any good films of late. Well, you've made your best work is a long time behind you, Marvel. The trailer's not very good. Um, and, you know, I'm just not really sure what to expect from this. But obviously I'm going to be there when it opens because I'm curious. Yeah. It's the one thing that I will give it that I do appreciate is the fact that it doesn't seem like while there is the obvious nod to the legacy of Chris Hemsworth's Thor character and what he's been through with the narration of uh, Korg 
to the kids as he's telling the story of the God of Thunder and all of that stuff. Aside from that, doesn't look like you need to really do homework for this movie, which is refreshing. That could be a plus. That could be a plus. Yeah. Um, look, I, I guess it's hard to judge a trailer. Can they make so many bad trailers? I'm just like, I, please get this one right. Come on, guys. I, I really quite looking. I'd quite like to see a Marvel film again. It doesn't suck. Yeah. That would be nice. I mean, it's it's hard to say that any of the movies that they've brought out suck because they haven't all out and out sucked. There have been redeeming qualities to them. But when you compare them to Phase 1 and Phase 2, it's just like, mm, yeah. Well, they Marvel suck. Yeah. Well, I, on reflection, I think the Eternals sucked. Um, and um, you're right. The others have just been kind of middling. Um, yeah. I am partly tempted to go back to the Eternals and just rewatch it uh, just to see if, in hindsight, it does get better. But I can't be bothered because <laughs> there's plenty more wonderful movies out there to watch. But we'll, all will be revealed on the 7th of July, I think it's coming out. So yep. not long to go now. Yep, 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 yep. Is it time for our sponsor yet? I think it is. Uh, I think it is. Who is sponsoring us this? Well, aren't we going to be crossing? Yes, we are going to cross live to Tokyo right now. We've got some special correspondence on the <laughs> Japanese version of Is It Cake? Oh, <laughs> Okay. Here we go. さあ、パキット。すげえ力なんじゃない。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ。すげえ
奇跡の一投をスローでもう一度美しい放物線を描いたピザは一直線にレンジへやはり落下しながら左に傾いたが今度はそれを計算に入れていた菊池はなんとオーブンレンジのドアを利用して方向転換見事ピザはレンジの中へ全てが狙い通りまさにウルトラマン There you go. Don't say we don't get any, your updates on the sporting activities. Last week we were talking soccer. This week we're talking pizza frisbee.、Um, it is true. <laughs> Now, let's just finish off with our superhero conversation, shall we? Because I understand that you went to go and see Sony's latest effort. I was going to, I, I'm going to talk two superhero films quickly. I'm going to talk one good one, one bad one. All right. So. And then you didn't go、know? anywhere to see Sony's latest, latest piece of crap. But、um, I did on Friday night get a chance to see Morbius, which is, of course, Sony's latest、um, effort in the Spider Man universe.、Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, a friend of mine had told me they saw it with、um, some younger folks and、yeah. they'd all enjoyed it. Okay. And that made me go, huh? Because like, the trailers look bad. The fact that it sat on the shelf for two years looked bad.、Yep. And all the reviews said it was bad. I mean, it has a 35 meta score, 5.2 IMDb rating. And I thought, well, I'm very curious. So we sat down and watched it. And the first 20 minutes, here's the really weird thing they're pretty good. I mean, they're not terrible. Like, they're just, okay, this isn't terrible. It's not terrible. So, not terrible. Is a pass score for something like this when you get told it's going to be utter garbage and you go, It's not terrible. I'm not, I'm not hating this so far. And then it just kind of just shat the bed and you're like, Oh, okay. Wow, this is boring.、Um, this is a really, really bad film overall after that, after that first 20 minutes where it does a fair job of starting to introduce the character of Michael Morbius. Yeah, it then just completely gives up on it and just goes batshit crazy. This feels very much like a, a superhero film from the early 2000s. Where we watched Fantastic Four a few weeks ago, yeah, where they just didn't know what to do with these characters, and somehow, despite the fact that the um the template has been well established now of what you do with them, but yeah, they've kind of gone well, fuck that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like so. This film is. An hour 44. It is one of those films that, despite the fact it's not very long, it feels fucking long.、Yeah. And despite the fact it's actually not particularly short, they、yeah. really don't tell very much story in that time. So they, they, they don't use the time they have particularly well to tell a good story. So it feels long and boring. At、yeah. the same time, if they, they just don't, you don't really know who the characters are and you don't care.、Yeah. Um, so. Um, for those who don't know, biochemist Michael Morbius tries to cure himself of a rare blood disease, but he inadvertently infects himself with a form of vampirism as well. Michael Morbius is played by Jared Leto.、Uh, the main villain is his friend Milo, played by Matt Smith, who absolutely chews the scenery、um, as Matt Smith can, only can. Yeah.、Um, the, their mentor, father figure, played by Jared Harris, is Dr. Emil Nicholas. The love interest, Adria Adrona, plays Martine Bancroft, is wasted. 
Mm-hmm. Tyrese Gibson has a role in here. If you saw the trailers, you would have seen that Michael Keaton reprises his role of Vulture. Oh, yes. yes. But <laughs> ridiculously, Michael um, Michael Keaton's uh, Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. Vulture, doesn't turn up into a post credit scene. And yet he's in the trailer. He's in the trailer. But if you watched the film and got up and left, you wouldn't see him. He, put, uh, he turns up in a prison in this universe <laughs> as part of the universe split thing that happens in Spider-Man um, No Way Home. Oh, yeah. And then he gets let out because no one knows who he is in this universe and somehow manages to get a hold. Sorry, I should have said spoilers, but I'm doing you a favor, really. Um, <laughs> somehow manages to get a hold of his vulture suit and fly out and find Michael Morbius in the second post credit scene and say, hey, I heard you help people. Let's do some good. Um, and you're like, okay. So he just got automatically transported into this universe randomly as part of this universe, but I doesn't seem worried about it. Um, two, manages to somehow get a hold of his vulture suit, which, if we follow the logic, shouldn't exist in this universe. Uh, yeah. And two, then find out who Michael Morbius is, <laughs> find him, and decide to do, I guess this is the beginnings of a Sinister Six, maybe? Well, Sony have been desperate to have the Sinister Six on screen since Sam Raimi first had Spider-Man. I think we talked about this perhaps the first show we ever did. I remember going back that far. We were talking about yep. the Sinister Six film they were thinking about doing. I thought Vulture was a bad guy, but like somehow he's had a change of heart. Um, yeah. So that's really fucking lame. And you're like, that's kind of like, oh, you put the guy in a trailer, but he's only in the post credits scene. That's nasty. <laughs> um, and I feel like there's giant chunks of his film that have been cut out, like to try and trim it down to get it, you know, into a certain length and yeah. to get it watchable. Because it just sort of, it's choppy. The story is choppy. It jumps around all over the place. We don't really learn a lot about Milo other than the fact he's also uh, crippled as a kid and, you know, has a similar um, yeah, condition to Michael Morbius and they want he wants to help him. Uh, Michael Morbius wants to help Milo and himself become whole people and yada, yada, yada. But we don't get anywhere near enough time. We sort of jump from, like, one scene to them as friends, as kids, to mm. you know, 20 years later, 25 years later or something, when they're fully grown adults, mm. and Mono's kind of uh, he's kind of a douche. Um, even before he gets the uh, shock horror, he gets the same serum or what do you want to call it as um, as Michael Morbius, and then that turns him into an asshole. Whereas Michael mm. Morbius is not an asshole. Um, Fair enough. This is a fucking bad movie. I, I don't. I my I I've been kind of. I didn't want to be rude to my friend who said she <laughs> liked. It. I'm sorry, Marty, if you're watching. I know you dug it, but this is a stinky piece of shit. Um, And if this doesn't, you know, this is not the film to, to try and kick off the Sinister Six with, I think. Um, I I don't know what they're going to do, if they're going to continue with it or not. Um, But not many people saw this. So that'd be a ballsy move to do that. Yeah. It's looking. It looks like this is probably going to be the only Morbius. We may get more Morbius in other Spider-Man properties. Maybe the um, end of a Spider-Verse or something. Probably. And uh, there's, I think they're working on a Craven the Hunter 
movie. Yeah, Aaron Taylor Johnson's going to play Craven the Hunter, which is another bad choice. Yeah. Um, Jared Leto, he's an interesting guy. Like, I mean, he can act. He can flat out act. If you ever saw um, uh, the, the AIDS movie he won the Oscar for, I can't remember. It's Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. Um, he's really good at that. You go back to Requiem for a Dream back in the 90s. The guy can, mm-hmm. yeah. he's a really great actor when he puts his mind to it. But uh, when he doesn't, his head isn't in it or he hasn't got the script to work with, he mm-hmm. needs. Um, yeah. But if you look at something like uh, when he played Joker, and that was awful. Um, and this is equally awful. He should probably stay away from superhero films. Yeah. And the thing was, I think that he was offered numerous superhero uh, roles across DC and Marvel, and this was the one that he wanted because I think he's a fan of Morbius or something, and it was a bit of a passion project for him. Bad choice. Um, yeah. Uh, <coughs> and, I mean... I don't know it's really his fault per se. I mean, yeah. he's nothing terrible about his performance. isn't awful. He kind of looks like the kind of guy to be a vampire. Um, so I don't necessarily think this is Leto's fault. And there's all the stories that have come out that he insisted, you know, he stayed in character and had people take him to the toilet in a wheelchair and shit like that. The guy's method, fine, whatever. I, You know, I don't think he's the problem here. Mm. Well, um, but apparently, uh, according to... IMDb um, trivia. Jared Leto claimed that Michael Morbius' personality was close enough to his own that he didn't find it necessary to use his famous method approach in the portrayal of the character. Despite how much fun he had, he still found the role quite challenging due to it being less character-driven than his previous performances. It's a superhero film, mate. Like, Maybe uh, Daniel Espinosa is a director not familiar with most of his work. I think he did Safe House, the Ryan Reynolds film that was possible. Oh, yeah. The writers here might be the main problem. Why you would hire, we've got, why you'd hire these people, I don't know. We've got two of them here, Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless. Um, and if you look at their resume, they have worked on films like Power Rangers, The Last Witch Hunter, and Gods of Egypt. I mean, those are three certified flops. Um, God of Egypt in particular, a lot. Funny enough, I didn't hate that film, but um, mm-hmm. most people did, um, and it's pretty yeah. well acknowledged as being one of the worst films of the year that came out. So, yeah, why you go? Hey, we've. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand Sony. They hold onto their prop, their one superhero property, so tightly. Like you know, yeah. they, they just they want to try and spin off every single character who has no space for a spin off film. Because then you go, no, I definitely want to make superhero films. They get out, yeah. themselves Tom Hardy to play Venom, which is probably the, the saving grace of those films is Tom yeah. Hardy. Then yeah. you go out and hire these fucking plonkers to, to write your 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 next uh, Spider-Verse film. Why would, surely there's better out there than these two plonks. I mean, really. The, the problem is that Sony seems to always just rush every other property. They, they know that they can count on Spider-Man getting a, a certain amount of 650 million minimum at the box office so they they kind of account for that and they go into it but then everything else is like oh no one knows these characters or we need to suddenly make um new york 
just infested with bad guys for Spider-Man to beat at one point or another because we don't want to spend time in the Spider-Man movie getting the audience caught up on this new villain that we're introducing. And we want to have these pre-established villains so that it's not that they're coming up at the same time as Spider-Man. I don't know what their logic is, but they always rush these side projects every single time. If you're going to rush it, I mean, which is a bad choice, but could you at least hire competent writers? Like, okay, you wrote freaking Last Witch Hunter. Awful. You wrote The yep. Gods of Egypt. Awful. Yep. Surely go ahead and fucking hire Kevin Smith. Like, yeah. I mean, Kevin hasn't done anything good in about 10 years, but at least he understands the characters, you know? The, the, at the very least, getting someone like Kevin Smith to just at least get the bones of the story in there and maybe hire someone else later on to come in and just un-Kevin oh, yeah. Smith it a little bit. Yeah. But... Or do it reverse, get Kevin Smith. I'm just interested because I know he's a huge fan of comic books and stuff. Yeah. There's got to be better people out there to write this shit than two guys who've got done no superhero films and everything they've done has been awful. Yeah. Craven the Hunter is being directed by J.C. Chandor, who is a very good director, actually, but he's never directed anything like this, I don't think. He wrote okay. and directed Margin Call, which is actually one of my favorite films. He also mm. directed and wrote and directed All Is Lost with Robert Redford. Most Violent Year and Triple oh, yeah. Frontier, which yeah. wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, but an interesting choice to direct a superhero film. The guy does really interesting character-driven stories, but okay. Yeah. Um, and Aaron yeah. Taylor-Johnson's a terrible actor, um, and it's also got Russell Crowe in it, so he's getting around this year, Russ. Yeah, he like is. Superman's dad, he's played Zeus, and now he's playing someone in this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, needless to say... If you see Morbius pop up on your streaming service and you've already paid for it this month, there are dozens of better films you could watch than this. I would recommend My Fake Fiance on YouTube before I would recommend this piece of crap. It's more fun and entertaining than this movie. Um, it, it's it's as bad as a review say it is. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Now, you said that you watched another superhero movie that was much better. Superhero movie. And I'm just going to back you up here a little bit. So last week, George talked about everything, everywhere, all at once. Is this a superhero film? No. Kind of, sort of, could be. Um, is it a sci-fi film? Kind of, sort of, could be. Drama, mm. could be. You know, um, it is everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, so George gave it an absolutely glowing review last week if you want to see what he had to say i'm not going to spend too long because he kind of said it all last week you can go back and watch listen to last week's show and you'll get the the full rundown of george's thoughts in this film other than to say but i finally got around to seeing it on monday mm -hmm. and i had a lot of thoughts about it one seeing this film made dr strange and the multiverse of badness bet worse yes it made it worse and yeah. So this is also a film. So just to quickly cover off, a woman tries to do her taxes. No, um, that is the synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> an aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save a world by exploring other universes connecting with a life she could have led. That Marvel, that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. All that, that, that pretty simple, what we wanted from your multiverse film, and you didn't give it to us. No. Nope. Um, so... Big smacks for you, Marvel. Go and stand in the corner. Um, mm -hmm. You failed. This yep. film succeeds in every way that that film... This succeeds in every way that film failed. It's mm -hmm. everything I wanted from that film, 
and didn't get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just seems coincidence that they sort of landed around about the same, the same time. time. Yeah. Um, this is, in fact, is the anti-Marvel film in a way. Um, yeah. This is about real people who kind of, I mean, it's kind of a really out there, outrageous story, but I kind of found it like it's about people and what they can do rather than super-powered people coming in and saving mm-hmm. the world from themselves, you know, people, you know, yeah. it's... Um, uh, it's 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 a tremendously it's outrageously violently original story. Mm-hmm. Like when you know Hollywood, um, we talk about it all the time. But like we talked earlier, a lack of original thought. Yes. Um, this is you know this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, apparently Netflix threw a massive budget at the Daniels, who mm-hmm. directed this film. This is Daniel Dan Kwan and Daniel Shinett, who mm-hmm. wrote directed this. They said no. And they took less money from to from A24 to make this film because mm-hmm. they wanted the crew to me. They're getting mixed up. So there's, there's the next film I'm going to talk about, not this film. But this is the highest grossing film from A24. Yes. Um, but you know, you know that these guys taken this studio and the studio would have told them to fuck off. No, they're not yeah. making this film, right? Yeah. Um, Michelle Yao deserves an Academy Award for this. And, and it, this film deserves a Best Picture nomination. It won't get one. No. Uh, but it absolutely should. If, if they're fair dinkum about what is the best picture of the year, this deserves a best picture nomination. Oh, yeah. At the very least, Michelle no. Yao deserves a best. If she doesn't get a best actor nomination, best actress nomination next year, then it's bunk. Next year's, ca- next year's best actress doesn't count if she doesn't get a nomination because yep. she is remarkable in this film. Um, and not just her acting, but all the physical aspects of her role as well. Because yep. the vast majority of the special effects, I understand, were done in camera, or a lot of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that effect at the start of a film where she's drawn into the, the janitor's cover <laughs> is, is done in camera. Yeah. They didn't yeah. have a massive budget. Like four or five people did the special effects. Yeah. And it looks better than She-Hulk. Yeah. Uh, which has, you know, like teams of people probably around the globe doing it. Um, you, Stephanie Sue, I think, as her daughter, Joy. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen her in anything before. She was amazing. Yeah. Yep. You called out James Hong. He's fucking James Hong, right? Like, yeah. he's a legend. <laughs> um, I have a real joy for me, the real surprising joys for me in this film, which I know you'd mentioned last week, but they kind of slipped my mind. Mm. It was Ki Hoi Kwan, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, Short Round mm-hmm. from um, Data from Goonies. Data from Goonies. Um, and for a minute, I'm like, he looks a lot like Jackie Chan. Um, but I'm like, I was thinking to myself, did they want to cast Jackie Chan in this film? Apparently they did actually, but yes. in Evelyn's role. So instead of Michelle Yao, they wanted Jackie Chan, but I think he passed on it. Mm. Um, failed, yeah, Jackie. Um, yeah. But, uh, and so if you don't know who uh, Short Round is, you go back and watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where he's the Goonies. Um, the guy just like knocked two massive roles out of a park and then didn't do anything pretty much for about 25 yeah. years, apart from some behind the scenes. Choreography work and coordination and second director. Um, which probably set him up well for this because his stunt work in this is exceptional. Yeah, particularly the bomb bag fight sequence. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and just the way he flips between the two characters, he plays he plays Waymond Wang, which is um, Evelyn Wang's sort of goofy, long-suffering husband. Um, and he sort of flips between this sort of cowed, goofy you know, character uh, you know, who is dominated by his wife and is seeking a divorce to flipping out to being this, you know, 
almost you know super secret agent super you know spy mm-hmm. kind of character yeah uh, super cool and overconfident and stuff and he just on on a, on a 10 cent piece he just flips character and he does it so well yeah. the other real joy here which again i know you mentioned but i've forgotten about was jamie lee curtis as deidre um birdie uh, is he initially the um the tax uh, official who's of kind of really keen on like nailing evelyn and her her business to the wall as part of an audit but it's they very flip through the different multiverses she plays any number of different roles yeah and it, it's probably going to end up being one of the great roles in her career in a yeah. in a career that includes films like you know um halloween uh true lies yeah. um you know no, uh, fish called wanda you know you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's how do you, you, you now a tiny little film like this that has no business yeah. being this good. Um, it's hilarious, it's yep. it's it's exciting, yep. it's emotional. Friend of a show, Patria told me she cried multiple times during this yep. film. I mean, could somebody like I was saying to, to Michelle afterwards, I'm like, I can guarantee the some of the marbles probably roll up to the Daniels and go on would you like to direct one of our films? Because that's kind of how they roll, right? Like, yeah. Or, or, or Kathleen Kennedy from Star Wars is probably going, yeah. would you like a Star Wars series? We've got 15 <laughs> of them we're working on. Yeah. You know? Um, and I just hope for their sake that they kind of say no in a way. Yeah. Like, as Michelle said to me, well, that Marvel money is good money. Yeah. You, know, you should, you know, they're not exactly household names, the Daniels here. So mm-hmm. should they say no to what is going to be some good money? And I'm, I'm like, you can understand if they took the money, but like everything they did here, if this was a Marvel film and they tried to make a Marvel film like this, Marvel would say, no, you can't do any of that. You can't, you make the film the way we want you to make it. And yeah. Maybe this is the film that Sam Raimi wanted to make, but if Sam Raimi can't make a film like this, yeah. Sam fucking Raimi can't yeah. get it past the guys at, at, at Marvel. These guys aren't. I have a recommendation. So, yes, they're probably having a lot of people calling them up and saying, hey, would you like... Now, we are aware that Warner Brothers are investigating more of the, the Elsewhere's stories and things like that. So what if they were to just go, hey, can you do Crisis of Infinite Earths for us, please? That would be that cool. Would be interesting. That, that would be interesting. Be cool. You'd have to have at least two or three films to tell that story, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or, or a, a mini series, or like the Zack Snyder version of Justice League where it's four hours long or something like that, but they could do something interesting with that i'm sure but i want them to just keep doing their original content because this is amazing i have one critique of this film mm-hmm. and it's one thing that separate from set to back from being perfect to me it, it, and this is where you knew it was coming people it was always coming to know this film is too long it probably mm. needs 10 minutes hacked out of it somewhere it just takes <laughs> a smidgen of the edge off what's a great great film just by going a little bit self-indulgent and going it kind of, it's a little bit too much of a good thing by the end. I'm like, I'd really like you to hurry up and finish, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's and that's a very mild criticism. I mean, it's, it's, and what is otherwise, and it, as I said, this is, this is everything the film industry needs. Um, it's outstanding. And what did get me interested in thinking was, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about something else too, but <laughs> one thing I was thinking was that I think, the um, most interesting cinema coming out of the States now is Asian American cinema. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Um, Before so we finish up on thing. everything everywhere all at once, I just want to say my favorite quote from the movie, because 
as weird as it may sound, it is the closest that I've ever had someone represent me on screen. And that is Wayman Wang when he says, you think because I'm kind that it means I'm naive and maybe I am. It's strategic and necessary. This is how I fight. It's a great line, really good line and really good for why, why be optimistic and why be happy. It's, it's I, great... and, and I haven't even touched on the family story yet. Like I think this is a yeah. film that's really about the intersection between tradition and, you know, modernity um you know and uh you know destiny and you know personal fulfillment yeah. this is this is the intersection of a lot of different and fascinating and interesting ideas yeah. the exploration of nihilism yeah you don't see that in cinema no the character yeah. of joy and the creation of the everything bagel and basically <laughs> I, I can see everything so nothing matters like basically her her philosophy is that of nihilism in a way yeah and, you know, Evelyn and Wayman, they kind of, in the end, decide to push back against that idea. You couldn't fall into that trap. And I think <laughs> you and I are people who've explored the idea of mental health before, that it's pretty easy in modern society, oh, especially yeah. when you're having a bad day, to yeah. fall into that trap of nihilism, nihilistic, nothing matters thoughts. But mm -hmm. it's almost a, it's almost a, a um, revolutionary idea to go well no my life has meaning because i give it meaning because i choose to have choose it for it to have meaning and the people around me and the people you know the, the love i feel for them gives it meaning yeah absolutely agree so and i haven't even touched that so this is what the layers of this is definitely a film i'm gonna have to see again at some point i have already pre-purchased it on apple because i need to watch it again what I was going to say, this is a follow-on from that, is that, as I said, I think Asian-American cinema is possibly the most interesting cinema going on right now. And if anybody, our mate from a few weeks ago was asking about messages in films, mm -hmm. and I feel like he was maybe talking about, you know, we've talked about forced diversity before, mm -hmm. how clumsily it can be inserted into mm -hmm. certain films. <laughs> Marvel. Um, <laughs> um, in a sense, it almost feels like window dressing or, Mm -hmm. um your diversity for it diversity's works. sake yeah but when it's done well this is the kind of thing that can come out of it so yeah. i'm thinking of a film we talked about it i think last year called minari that was starring Stephen Nguyen. Yeah. the world's greatest film synopsis ever a korean family starts a farm in 1980s arkansas yep almost <laughs> as good as a woman tries to do her taxes um, <laughs> um, if you haven't seen uh, uh, Iminari, it might look boring. It's not boring. It's beautiful. It's an incredible mm. film. But what I just thought, because I have seen Minari, what I kind of thought for myself was um, one of the, it's actually a link to Everything Everywhere All at Once, is uh, in one of the realities, Michelle um, oh, Yao is uh, a movie star. Yes, she is, Michelle Yao. The footage of her as a movie star is actual red carpet footage from when she starred in Crazy Rich Asians. And I feel like maybe this was the film that broke that, you know, shall we call it um, racial glass ceiling mm -hmm. in the sense that I know in the States in particular, black films, for want of a better term, I'm, me using that term, that's what they call them, uh, yeah. you know, the Tyler Perry films, you know, the Medea films, mm -hmm. which they don't even get a cinema release in this country. Nope. They don't. They don't you, Tyler Perry was nobody here. He was a huge star in the States. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole subgenre of black films in the US. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the only place they'll go with that. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, if you were if it, the Asian American experience didn't seem to be on camera. Yeah. And we were just talking about, um, I'm sorry, Shoran uh, Kwan. I'm probably pronouncing it. Yeah. I apologize in advance for my bad pronunciation. I, I was found myself wondering after seeing everything everywhere all at once is what happened to him? Why did he decide to step away from film? Because I mean, mm. you know, he starred in two Spielberg, Spielberg films in a row. You, mm -hmm. you start, everybody remembers his character. Why did you do nothing else? And he uh, he did an interview on um, uh, I think it was Colbert. Mm -hmm. um, it could have been it could have been uh, one of those Tonight shows. I can't remember which one. If you can find it on on YouTube, and it could have been Jimmy Kimmel actually. Um, and like, he about how, how the, if what he said was there were no roles out there. Yeah, he basically couldn't find a role for his for him to be in. Uh, I think he appeared in what one or two things in between the interceding years, and they seem to be like kung fu films. Yeah. Um, but basically, they weren't making films of people that look like him. He is the long and yeah. short. I'm putting words in his mouth. You can find yeah. the interview yourself. And that's a damn shame, right? Because like mm -hmm. obviously the guy's an incredible actor we've seen right now, and I am sure we're yeah. going to be seeing. He's going to be starring in an Apple TV series called Chinese American, Ooh. which is based on a comic book, I think. Um, okay. And I think Michelle Yao's in that as well. Okay. Don't quote me, but he was on, that's what he was talking about in the interview. Um, and that's kind of made me think, like, you just didn't see the Chinese-American experience, like I said, mm -hmm. on the screen until probably, I'd say, in that do correct me if I'm wrong, I can't <laughs> think of one, Crazy Rich Asians came mm -hmm. out in 2018. So I thought to myself, I'm going to come home. And then, and I, literally that afternoon after watching everything everywhere at once, I came home and I watched Crazy Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't seen it and you dismissed it like me, let's have a quick chat. A contemporary romantic comedy based on a global bestseller follows native New Yorker Rachel Chu to Singapore to meet her boyfriend's family. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty standard. Here's the thing. This doesn't break any moles. In no. terms of the kind of story it's telling, <laughs> this is very much by the numbers um, romantic comedy. Yeah, 100%. this is basically Pretty Woman in Singapore. Yeah. Um, so we have the character of Rachel, played by Constance Wu. She mm -hmm. is a New York uh, economics professor. Mm -hmm. She is in a relationship with Henry Golding. Uh, sorry, Nick Young, played by Henry Golding. This is Henry Golding's first ever film role. Um, interesting. Okay. He's very, very handsome. Uh, and you know, not that, you know, look, you know, I'm not gay, but if I was, Henry, <laughs> I'd be writing you a sternly worded letter. Um, <laughs> um, and she doesn't know that Nick is an heir to a vast fortune, um, mm. in uh, for where his parents live in Singapore. Um, and he is virtual, virtual royalty in mm. Singapore, almost, I think, Kardashian level famous for being rich kind of level yeah. of celebrity and, you know, massive wealth. Yeah. The film opens with Michelle Yao, who plays Nick, uh, Nick's mother, uh, Henry Golding's mother, uh, Eleanor, being mm -hmm. denied uh, accommodation in a British hotel. For bloody British. Uh, only to, only to get around it by having a husband that literally buy the hotel. Yeah. To give you an idea of the kind of wealth that they command. Um. They are going to, sorry, Rachel and Nick go to Singapore for their, a friend of Nick's is getting married. They go there for the wedding. Mm -hmm. and this will be the first time Rachel's meeting his family. And he, she has literally no idea what she's getting into. 
Mm. Um, in their cast of characters in there, we also have Gemma Chan playing mm. uh, Nick's cousin, Astrid. We yeah. have Aquafina that plays Peak Lingo, who mm. is Rachel's um, former roommate from when they start, she started in the United States. Mm. We have Ken Jeong uh, is a another cousin. I think uh, no, he's uh, um, I think he's uh, um, Aquafina's dad. That's right. We also have Ronnie Chang in there, who mm-hmm. is a cousin, I think. If you don't yeah. know Ronnie Chang, uh, I always remember him because he's an Australian, or at least he <laughs> was Australian for a while. He was based here before he became famous. Now he does stuff on the Daily Show. He yeah. was in he was in um, Shang Chi yes, uh, and uh, Godzilla, yeah. um, and so it's good to see uh, him pop up. Nick Santos is Oliver, who is another cousin. Jimmy mm-hmm. O'Yang, uh, also in the mix as well. I think he's a friend of the groom. Mm-hmm. So there's a cast of a lot of every, basically every Asian American actor you can imagine, apart from James Hong, is in this film. Pretty much. Um, and it, it sort of proceeds from it. So like she gets to she gets to Singapore. At that point, she starts to find out uh, exactly how rich Nick is and how famous mm-hmm. he is. Uh, however, Eleanor does not approve. Mm-hmm. Of him, her son marrying uh, an American essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, she calls her a banana at some point. I think she's called a banana by somebody, um, <laughs> which is an interesting insult. Um, and uh, it sort of really proceeds to sort of a, that kind of you know clash of um, uh, classes rather than the clash of cultures here, as, mm-hmm. as Rachel sort of really decides to fight for for Nick and sort of take on mm-hmm. uh, the. Uh, Shall we say the, the, the mean girls who are kind of determined to kind of undermine her and uh, mm. scare her off, so to speak? Um, the real strength of this film is really the the their strongest point of the film are really the the head to head battle between Rachel and Eleanor mm-hmm. for, for for soul of Nick in a way. Yeah. Um, in a way, I, I found this film actually kind of gross, um, kind of disgusting, actually. Um, only because of it's kind of really, really came to, for me to glorify how rich everybody is. It wouldn't be amazing to be rich, isn't it? Cool to be rich, look how much rich yeah. shit they have. Um, which is probably me just being a little bit. This is my this is my uh bolshy showing, um, a little bit here and and uh, the, the inner pinko going, fuck these rich guys, yeah. Um, they should be first against the wall, all of them. Um, and they're all ridiculously good looking as well, yeah. Um, but it's it sort of it's it's a, it's a pretty woman. The, the, hmm. the vast majority of the film kind of consists of um, you know you guys work in commission, right? You missed out big. You know that moment from from Pretty Woman seems to come up again and again. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the same time, that uh, display of wealth is kind of consistently parodied and made a laughing stock, particularly with Aquafina's family and how when you go and see them and they're uh, even by by standard American lifestyle and Western lifestyle living there in this beautiful big house and they've got lots of everything and they're ridiculously rich. Um, they're the weird, quirky, eccentric ones to the point of farce. And then you see um, Eleanor Young's ridiculous estate and how everything is pristine and perfect and elaborate and it just... It's all designed to feel uncomfortable, I think. Potentially, you're right. I, I didn't come across it, feel it as a parody. I kind of felt it as fetishization, mm-hmm. especially of, of, of Eleanor's wealth. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's, there's a great line. I was just looking at the some of the quotes from the movie and Aquafina's character. Um, where is it? Hang on. Uh, just says Chinese sons think their mums fart Chanel number no. five. Yeah. <laughs> Here's where I think it's nice, though, right? This is where it does. Like I said, it doesn't break the mold. It does all the same moves yeah. as a as a regular standard run of the mill rom com. But seeing that angle of it being about a racially diverse group of people, in this yeah. sense, an, an Asian American and actual Singaporean Chinese people. Mm. These stories don't get told very often, right? Yeah. And that does add a different flavor to the rom-com when you filter that rom-com, standard rom-com formula through that culture, you get yeah. a slightly different result. Mm-hmm. Um, in this result where, if you can imagine, you know, like an American rom-com where, oh, my parents disapprove of this person, me marrying this person. You know, I'm sure that's been done. Yeah. But I don't know that that would feel really legit or, or, or kind of, realistic in this day and age like who would probably pass up on somebody because their parents disapprove of them and i mean yeah the only time that that would really come up is if it was like if they went into very deep christian parts of the the country or something like that and it's like oh she is an atheist what she's a she's a you know a uh queer atheist a uh, gender studies professor from portland or something there's something in that. There's a story there. Um, but, get away for free <laughs> Um But I just don't know if it'll be real. I mean, classism exists most certainly in the United States, to a, in Australia to a degree, mm-hmm. probably to a great deal in the UK. Maybe the story would make a little bit more sense from a British perspective. Yeah. Um, but I kind of think it's it's not it's not something we accept anymore. Like, in, uh, mm-hmm. just what I was thinking. Like, it's not yeah. cool to be classist. It's not cool to be upper mm. crust and to be part of a one yeah. percent so to speak if you look at what went on after the election here in australia this weekend everyone wants to cast themselves as working class these days you know yeah. we had the, the party of rich people selling its message to working class people uh, <laughs> because rich people don't want to vote for that party anymore um so no one wants to think of themselves as the upper crust the one percent uh, at least i think in the west it's kind of uncool to yeah. be seen as classist Whereas yeah. they're totally cool with it in, in this part of the world, if I'm to judge by this film. Mm. Being it's, part of a rich, a rich, you know, the, the upper crust in this in that in Singapore, they don't have a problem with that per se. If I'm again I'm judging on what this film is giving me is an accurate yeah. depiction. This is this is, as you said, it is very much that quintessential um commoner falling in love with the prince. That's that's what it is. It's the English version of that, which um today going back and looking at any of those movies that that are about that it just feels like fuck off come on it's it's just evolved out as a story i'm assuming from the way people talk about this film but this feels like a pretty legit yeah depiction of how things might play out in in a more traditional culture like a chinese singaporean family that kind of thing might make actually a lot more sense so all of a sudden a slightly different flavor of this rom-com works here where it maybe wouldn't work in the West. And this is when I talk about um, actual diversity in telling different stories of different cultures. Yeah. We get, which means we can recycle the stories, right? We we, we only have what, seven different stories in the world or something. You spin it through a different culture. It has a different flavor and it works differently. Yeah. Um, And the thing is that if I watched any, pretty much any rom-com, I can't even remember the last rom-com. I guess 
fake my fake fiance was a rom-com so there you go yeah. um but most rom-coms bore me to tears like their their moves are so telegraphed it's so played out as a genre you know exactly what's going to happen before it happens and i know what's going to happen in this film before it happens but it's incredibly watchable i enjoyed this film immensely as a result yeah. of that different flavor that different angle that slightly different way of doing the story was a lot of fun i really laughed a lot at this film and i thought it was wonderful yeah it's it was really just every character every actor brings their character to life in a genuine way and there is that element of tongue-in-cheek to it but also that that diversity as you've talked about to make you kind of go oh well shit yeah that is something that I don't have to consider like, oh, I don't really care what my mum thinks about who I bring home or anything like that. It's just an interesting change. It's one of the, the more interesting elements of an otherwise very dull meandering turning red by Pixar. The, the mother-daughter relationship and that kind of pressure of being excellent and being superb and suppressing and doing everything that you can regardless of your own well-being it puts something interesting into that otherwise very bland story. So I totally agree with you. I mean, if nothing else, I don't know. I know a few people who live in a sort of, who are from this part of the world a little bit, mm. but not overly well. Mm. But it, you can just see when you talk to them about these sort of films, how personally they take it. Mm. They're telling the story about someone like me. Mm. Like even, it's not really a story like, um, I assume you're not an interdimensional kung fu master, but I can't confirm that. But your little quote there about from 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 everything everywhere all at once—that that's how I thought. Yeah. It, when you can associate, when you see a character on the screen, you associate with that strongly. It's a yeah. really nice moment. Yeah. And I can only imagine how this made a lot of fucking money. Oh yeah. Um, so oh, there's yeah. a sequel coming out as well eventually at some point. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine how nice that must be, how exciting it must be for all of those Asian American people mm. and probably also people from Asia proper, um, mm. you know, who saw this film and saw a little bit of themselves on screen for the first time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to get all political because this, this is a rom-com, not a political <laughs> film, but you stop <laughs> and think about it for a second and go, you and I never had to worry about that because I always come back to it. Everybody we grew up watching looked like us. Yeah, hundred percent. I remember the um, the um, tabloids and everyone talking about how, in the opening screenings of Black Panther, how they purposely took it to heavily black communities and how they loved to see their own representation. This is that for for the Asian community, and it's another reason why I think Shang Chi hit quite hard, quite well because it's like again another interesting representation. They kind of fumbled the story a little bit in the end, but overall it was very well received. And it's it means that it's interesting for us too. It doesn't have to be about representation for us all the time. It doesn't mean I can't watch a genuine representation of other people. <gasps> I really liked it. I'm like, what a fascinating little story. Because like I said, kind of classism is kind of really out of fashion here in the West. It's mm. not there, which no. makes it a really interesting story yeah. to see a Western character in Rachel try to navigate that that yeah. that class system because i think to myself wow what would you do in that situation if all of a sudden you were thrust into you know a very i mean you, you've met families before right like yeah. um uh, uh, they're complicated <laughs> it's always a complicated journey trying to get to know someone else's family imagine how one, one is big 
It was rich. It was complex. Yeah. Uh, I got to say, Nick Young is a dick of a boyfriend, and he deserved to get his ass kicked by Rachel in this film. Because, like, yeah. if you rolled me up to meet your family, oh, by the way, did I mention they were Murdochs? Yeah. Like, uh, oops. Oh, I just didn't want you to. No, come on, no. If you're inviting your your girlfriend to meet your family, you got to give them some context. She gave Hell her. Yeah. Get her zero context about what she was getting into. He set yeah. her up that fail. He's a dick. Yeah. Very, very handsome with a cut jaw and a very nice body. Dick. Um, <laughs> Michelle Yao is incredible in this film again. As like, always. She's a I had this is two films in a row. I I, I think it's almost wipes her over the sins of Star Trek Discovery, which isn't really her fault. Um <laughs> why she's wasting her time on that direct, I will never know. And it was interesting to see Gemma Chan in this film. Like I'm a fan of Gemma Chan from her time on the British TV series Humans, which mm-hmm. was a few years ago now. I thought she was wonderful in that, but mainly because she plays a an emotionless robot. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really played it well. Yeah. Um, and I thought she was a strange choice to lead up the Eternals. Yeah. But when you see this film, you're like, oh, okay, this is the film we got of the Eternals. Yeah. She was a poor choice for the Eternals. Yes. Because she's not much of an actor. She's file yeah. under Gal Gadot. Give her something to do that fit works for her set of skills. But funny enough, she does something a little bit different in this one. Her character Astrid is sort of a gets a little bit more screen time here, and actually gets some emotional scenes between her and her husband, which mm-hmm. Gemma Chan really pulls off quite well. Yeah. Which I haven't seen her do before, mm-hmm. as I thought she was as wooden as a cricket bat in the Eternals. Um, so this is this makes a lot more sense why she ended up in yeah. that film. And Aquafina does Aquafina things. Yeah. Um, I I really liked like I've I'm growing an appreciation of Ken Jong's style as well, and in in this he kind of won me over um, because they are the I don't know the the balm to the very astringent and. Sterile youngs, the the girl family, and it's you know they they play their part really well of being borderline lovable oafs. Um, I think they're supposed to be very relatable characters. Yeah, and it just kind of makes you makes you love them. And he's that in spite of the heavily injected comedy into every scene that they're in. There is also heart to it. And Ken Jong and Aquafina are both good at actually balancing that line and putting a little bit of genuine care and emotion into those scenes as well to give them some brevity, but levity. Um, you know, and I also really, as I mentioned Ronnie Cheng earlier, mm-hmm. I really want to see more of his character because everything he did in this film made me laugh. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to see him get, I've talked about it before. He did a series here in Australia called foreign student or something like that the international student yeah there's only one series before he actually became famous and started doing movies and he was very good and very funny in that um mm. so uh i'd love to see him actually get something he can actually sink his teeth into rather than little glorified cameos i can almost see him um and his character from shang chi ending up kind of being um the asian version of um, Michael Pena's character from Ant Man, 
where he's there. Right, yeah, of, yeah. You know, it's it's that they've got the similar kind of energy to them, and I can see them trying to pull that that Uno card twice. So I don't know, but I would love to see him actually do something unique and original for him because yeah, he's always funny when he's on screen. I, I mean, I just noticed him as I said. He he did yeah. his, he started his start here in Australia before he he is Malaysian, um, uh, Malaysian Australian, I guess American now maybe. But uh, I guess if you're just saying like. I, I want to reinforce that. The reason I came to this film is I think this is where original mm-hmm. stories or original flavoured stories are happening mm-hmm. in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Uh, and even maybe the most original flavoured ho- of Marvel stories more recently came in the form of an Asian-American story. Mm-hmm. Um, as you yeah. said, they didn't quite stick the landing, but I mostly like Shang-Chi. Yeah. Um, and if you're like me and you kind of look at this and go, oh, currency rotations, no time for rom-coms. This is a delightful film. This is probably mm. a film you can put on a text at the same time. Yeah. But you'll have a great time doing it. Yeah. This is very comfortable viewing for for couples um, because you're both going to be able to enjoy it, I think. Um, it's very open. It's not insular in its narrative. It's just kind of greets you and really welcomes you. and enjoyable and entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not part of a bigger IP or anything. And you're like, I can just watch it, enjoy it. I don't know. We're about to get into the crazy, uh, crazy cinematic universe. Well, there are two sequels planned. Apparently, there are three books. And you know what they'll do? They'll split if the second one's any good or remotely <laughs> successful. They'll split the last one into Harry Potter two halves. You know, <laughs> I think oh, the, the sequel will be called China Rich Girlfriend. Oh, that's what the book's called anyway. So we'll see how they go with that. But I can't speak hardly enough. I, it's only got a 6.9 on IMDb. I think that's really low. I enjoyed it yeah. a lot. I, I, I enjoyed it as well. I've seen it a couple of times and I just like it. It's it's a good time, good time waster. <laughs> now, I'm going to quickly talk uh, just updates on my two Apple TV shows before my throat decides to pack its bags and leave me forever um i've got the latest episode of shining girls and the series is not yet finished which i'm annoyed at because i want to know how it ends but at the same time this latest episode really goes into um the genesis of jamie bell's character and it is i'm still loving what this show is doing the cinematography is fantastic the performances are great the narrative is delicious the way that it is slowly building upon itself and everything is just coming back and through and weaving and dodging and i i just i i I feel like i know where it's going to end and how it's going to end but i don't know and it's not often that that happens with me i spoil movies nice Nice to be surprised this is this is what your your life is like (laughs) it's so delicious um but i'm i'm genuinely loving this show um it's if you have an opportunity to see it ladies and gentlemen do watch shining girls because it is different kind of storytelling that if you like quality story if you like gritty story if you like unusual story with great strong performances by the three main characters this has got it um, now, just lastly, I'll talk about Slow Horses, which I had started last week and I have gone through and finished season one now. This is about the disgraced, what happens to disgraced spies after they flunk out of MI5 and they go to Slough House. 
it's called Slough House because it's so far away from the beating heart of British intelligence, it might as well be in Slough. And for anyone who doesn't know, Slough's a long way away from London. Um, they don't know. Slough football team are nicknamed the Rebels. Yeah, yes, we talked about that last time. And we're not <laughs> about it this time. <laughs> um, they are headed up by um, Jackson Lamb, played by the ever-brilliant Gary Oldman. And um, the story follows some radicalised English um, nationals who kidnap an Asian Englishman with the intent of they are going to live stream beheading him to send a message that England should be for the English and they're called the Sons of Albion and all of this shit. And basically it's all about um, the slow horses, these um, agents of Slough House as they're nicknamed, um, and MI5 trying to actually resolve this and the interweaving stories between the two agencies. And this is great. There is genuine comedy moments in it without it being laugh out loud. They are just funny, honest moments that happen throughout it. Um, for prime example, there's a moment where two of the agents are in a car. They've stopped out of the petrol station. And one of them has gone off to try and get information about if they've seen the suspects. The other guy is just there, just staring at the other agent and then cuts to later on and the car breaks down. Like, How the fuck have we run out of petrol? It's like, well, I didn't get any. We stopped at a fucking petrol station. What are you talking about? Like, I was distracted. With what? It's like, nothing. It's like, you were thinking about fucking sex, weren't you? You fucking idiot. And it's, it's it's just little moments like that that just pepper through. And it's just that nice little bit of lightness to a very serious story. But at the same time, the exchanges between the characters is just brilliant. And I'm so happy there's a season two. So I'm really excited. And I'm really keen to get a look at that when I can. Yeah. And we talked about it and you mentioned it last time about how um, we we really loved Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a little line right at the end that there's nothing about it in the characters, but um, Jonathan Price, who is a cameo, very minimal cameo in it, um, he just says um smiley always survives and <laughs> carrie oldman's character is george smiley and it's like it's just a great little connection it's not he's not playing george smiley in this but it's just that nice little nod that there's this legend of george smiley in mi5 secret service and it lives on through this and jackson lamb is the closest that you get to it, but he's an overweight farting asshole. He doesn't give a shit about anyone. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Apple kicking goals still. Yeah. Yep. And um, I will talk about it more next time, but I have watched episode two of the Essex serpent starring Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston. That's developing. Interestingly. Um, it's, very much playing itself more as a romantic thriller than anything else, but it's starting to turn. The narrative is turning a little bit, and I'm very curious. Very, very curious. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, that's I think it. I think we'll give you a further break from now on. <laughs> so thank you. Honey. So you're going to do because he can't talk from that now. Thank you, everyone, for watching and tuning in. If you watched the live stream, um, thank you to your mates from uh, 
your unemployed, uh, your unnamed employer who tuned uh, in and gave us notice that you sound like a jazz singer. Um, thank you to anybody who yeah. downloads the show. We love we appreciate you. It. Appreciate the support. Um, and we're currently up to over four thousand persistent subscribers on the podcast. I don't know where you come from. I would have thought those Russian bots were too busy with the Ukraine, but no. you know, uh, I guess they can multitask. <laughs> But yes, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We talked about our chain movie of the week, Prisoners. We're going to be talking about Kate and Leopold next week. Um, we talked Love, Death and Robots. Travis talked about Mobius and um, my favourite movie of the last 10 years, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um, uh, the Thor trailer, Slow Horses, Shining Girls and Crazy Rich Asians. So it's been quite a show. And next week, I think we're going to have, depending on when it releases, um, might have some talks on game uh, Sniper Elite 2, uh, 5, even, on Game Pass, as well as possibly Stranger Things Season two, season 4. I haven't and, worked with Season 2, so that'll be you, not me. I will be talking about that if it's out. And um, probably a bit more about the Essex Serpent. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank Good you very night. much. Good night.